brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, here to help you make a little more sense out of this weird world, which is never an easy task. With so many things open to interpretation, high strangeness can oftentimes be pretty hard to define. We can also get caught up in traps of terminology and category that can greatly affect how experiences are understood and take us off the course of true understanding. Our visitations from unknown beings, angelic communication, or alien encounters. Our orbs of light, messages from God, or signals from our space brothers. Were the strange experiences that anointed certain religious figures with sainthood what we'd call paranormal today? And what sort of beliefs do the billionaires of the tech space who really influence our everyday lives actually have behind the curtain? When you're wrestling with such big questions, it helps to have a complete data set, but we're still sorting out exactly where to draw the line. Add in the facts that many people who have ET encounters go through a spiritual transformation, and some of the world's most advanced telescopes are produced by the Catholic Church, and it starts to feel like one big bowl of mulligatani. Well, today's guest is an accomplished professor stitching together these very worlds of religion and UFOs, and has been examining the overlap, as well as the religiosity of ufology. Her name is Dr. Diana Pasolka, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina and Chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion. She has a great new book out published by Oxford University Press called American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, and Technology, which details her wild six-year ride researching these hidden things from the inner circles of Silicon Valley to beyond the gates of Vatican archives. It's one of the most interesting books I've read in a while, and I'm psyched to dive into it. The Doctor of Dogma, the Professor of Paranormal Thread Connecting, and Ufology Fight Club Chronicler, Dr. Diana, welcome to the higher side. <laughs> thank you. I really like that introduction. <laughs> nice. Well, I try. I try. <laughs> and thank you so much for being here. You obviously have accomplished a lot, and I'm fortunate to have some of your time. You're probably the only person I know of to penetrate both the inner circles of the Silicon Valley Tech Elite and Vatican Archives. Very cool. And for listeners who are on the outside, who are pretty intrigued by secrets, it's hard to find a more impressive set of experiences than what you write about in this book, especially because it is so recent. And of course, the obvious first question is how someone like yourself, who's really dedicated your career path to religious studies, ends up interested in UFOs. 
We all know that sometimes we don't fully choose the path. The path can choose us. And I guess that's kind of in play here because this sci-fi twist in your journey sort of started with an investigation of purgatory. Is that right? That is right. Yes. So it is odd for me. I have to admit that the research in the book was as odd for me as it appears for others. So let me assure you that that is the case. And if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd be publishing a book like this, let alone talking about UFOs and this phenomena, I would have laughed, okay, Hmm. and probably kicked you out of my house. (laughs) So how did this happen? I grew up actually around Silicon Valley, and so I already knew, you know, that there was a tech revolution. I was going to grad school during the 1990s, so that's when the big dot-com boom was happening. So, you know, it's happening everywhere around me while I was studying religious studies at the University of California. And I'd been interested in technology only because I could tell that it was changing the very fabric of our society in ways in which people who are born after 2000 don't understand. So, you know, I could feel the, you know, there's a German term for it, the zeitgeist. Hmm. And it basically means the really intense spirit of the time. And so I could feel that when I graduated with PhD and I was an assistant professor in my field, you publish or perish. So I was, you know, publishing about Catholic culture, which is the field that I'm most acquainted with. And I was doing a lot of work on basically what you would call aerial phenomena and transformative experiences with respect to orbs, aerial phenomena, beings of light, things like that. And I was writing a book about the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And, you know, I was going back hundreds of years to look at archival resources or sources was what we would call them and read them. And I had a list of these things. And so, you know, I did write my book about purgatory and it was published by Oxford and it was, you know, a very decent, good academic book. I got tenure and You know, as academics generally have their next book already planned. So I had my next book already planned. I was going to write about this Catholic bishop, the first Catholic bishop here in the States. He was from Ireland, pretty cool guy. I thought, you know, somebody needs to write a book about this guy. People have written about him, but there needs to be a new book about him. John England was his name. Well, I was doing research for that. I kept going back because I was so intrigued by this list of reports of Catholics from hundreds of years ago up till the present, really, of aerial phenomena and their different interpretations of it. And I was looking at that and I was thinking, you know, I want to do something with this, but I'm not quite sure how to even think about it. So I was having coffee with a colleague and I presented it to the colleague and I said, what do you think of this stuff? And he looked it over, you know, and he went, mm, ah, you know, kind of thing. And he said, oh, this looks like Steven Spielberg stuff. Hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you know, it looks like UFOs. And really, I just almost like spat my coffee out at him, you know, like, get out. That's ridiculous. But coincidentally, there was a UFO conference. I'd never been to one, never even thought I'd go to one, but thought about what he said. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, yeah, it does kind of look like that. So I went to the UFO conference and there I listened to Chris Bledsoe, who is an experiencer. Your audience might be familiar with his story. He actually lives in North Carolina, pretty close to me. And I heard his story and a couple other stories by people who have had these experiences. And I realized that the patterns were so similar that I just decided to start to study this. And that's how it all began. It began in 2012. Mm. 
Yeah, I love it. And the book, you mentioned that you grew up around Silicon Valley, but the book opens with kind of a private tour of Silicon Valley hosted by Jacques Vallée, legend in the field. That alone is pretty <laughs> impressive, right? Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, that all happened again by accident. I was at a conference in California and Robbie Graham, you might be familiar with his work. He wrote Silver Screen Saucers. And he actually was a PhD student at that time. He was in film and he was a journalist and he's interested in UFOs and things like that. And so um, he was also invited to this conference. And so we were both there and we were some of the only ones that were interested really in the UFO topic. And Jacques was there. Of course, he's, <laughs> you know, he is the name in UFOs. <laughs> and so... Robbie and I actually didn't have a ride back to San Francisco from the area that we were in, and Jacques offered to give us a ride. And we both kind of like high-fived each other, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Jacques decided that he was going to give us a tour of Silicon Valley and kind of talk to us about everything, about the secrets of Silicon Valley. And, and I have to say, it blew my mind, you know, and this was a place where I grew up. I knew all the places he took us. These were places from my childhood. And he talked about these places like somebody, you know, he created these places really, you know, this is where I worked, this is where I did this, and this is where SRI was and Stanford Research Institute. And he would hint at the secrets of Silicon Valley. And so he dropped Robbie off at his hotel and then he dropped me off and he gave me a couple books and he said, you know, I want you to read these books. And of course, heck yeah, I read those books. Hmm. So I read all of Jacques. You know, I'd already read most of what he had written already, but he gave me some other books that weren't published and stuff that he wanted me to look at. And ever since that time, I've actually been working with Jacques. So I developed a working relationship with him and we see each other, you know, a couple times a year. And now we work together and he's brilliant. What I found when I started to do the history of the space program and a the history of ufology and that type of thing. And to tell you the truth, the history of technology, what I found was Jacques was in all of that from 1970s on. So you can actually access Jacques' early work. A lot of it is online, free. And, you know, he's got stuff from the 1970s there about human computer interfaces and stuff like that. I mean, you know, so now he actually just read a paper that I had written and he commented to me on it. He said, oh, good work, Diana. He said, you know, we were already doing this in the 1970s. And I said, no, no, I know that. And he said, the only reason we couldn't actually get it done was because we knew how to do it. They just didn't have the correct technology to do it yet. So he was the forerunner of a lot of stuff that's happening now. But because people don't pay attention to history, no one really knows that. So I opened my book with Jacques for that reason, to kind of place him within that history. So people who are interested both in technology, but also in UFOs and paranormal would understand his place. And not just Jacques, but a lot of people that I end up calling the invisibles, a lot of them, they won't come out. You know, they did as much as Jacques did. And they're as interesting, but they want to live a more quiet life, I guess you could call it. <laughs> right. And that leads us right into what, to me, is one of the most interesting aspects of the book, why it's so unique, is you write about the quote-unquote invisible college, or to use another term, what's become the Silicon Valley Fight Club of academics, <laughs> scientists, and yeah. the millionaires, maybe billionaire class who's out there studying ufology in secret, 
but some are privy to classified information and cross paths with the military and deep corporate nexus. And this is super provocative to me. We have heard about it in past decades with SRI and the Stargate Project, that kind of thing. But I don't know anybody who's written about these latest glimpses into what it has become. That's very cool. Yes. So it took me a while. First of all, you have to understand there were a couple of times in the research when I decided this research was too weird for me. Mm. You know, if you look at my history, you look at my publications, I'm just a regular historian of religion. Like there's nothing weird about what I've done, right? <laughs> so I'm a very normal. <laughs> and then you get to past 2012 and I start to write some pretty crazy stuff. And I was thinking to myself, do I really want to do this? First of all, the things I was learning about were personally mind-blowing. And so I had to get used to that. Secondly, you know, if I hadn't already been a full professor and I was still on the road to getting tenure and that type of thing, I wouldn't have touched this research. No, not at all. So I felt pretty confident that, you know, I'd won some research awards. I'd won a lot of grants. I was like, I think I'm safe. I think I could do this and not get fired kind of thing. Hmm. So I kept doing it. I mean, as you yourself feel, there's an innate attraction. Once you start to recognize that the world isn't as you thought it was, how can you not want to study it? Well, how could I not want to know these things? So I had to know these things. I had to learn more about them. And what I found was that, you know, Jacques and his friend Heineck, who now is, you know, everybody can look at the quote unquote Project Blue Book, you know, historical documentary on TV. There were these programs and they existed. And so there was this thing called the Invisible College. And the Invisible College is, I believe Heineck actually coined the term from a term that I think Francis Bacon originated. Now I could be mm -hmm, wrong about that. Mm -hmm. But it originated back when science was something that the Catholic Church would kill you for. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I know that something that, you know, today that's not true. But back in the day, it was very true. If you're doing really far out science and your science was something that challenge the status quo, you could very well be killed for that. So there was this thing called the Invisible College. And so Heineck basically said, you know what, we're doing that now. So Jacques and Heineck were part of the Invisible College. And there's a book by Jacques called the Invisible College. So I realized that I was meeting people in the Invisible College, but it sure was different than when Jacques wrote about it in the 1970s. In fact, it was no longer the Invisible College because what happened to it was that the people, I don't know why this is the case, but I can tell you it's the case. What happened was that a lot of the people within it couldn't even talk to each other about what little part of it they were studying. So it became what I called, because I thought this was very similar to Fight Club, right? Mm -hmm. So Fight Club is a movie in the 1990s, and it's also a book. And it's about this group of men who create this fight club, but they don't talk about it because, you know, it's subversive. And well, really, this is what I was looking. I was looking at something that looked like Fight Club. So that's what I called it. I said, you know, the Invisible College has actually morphed into in the 2000s into Fight Club. So that's what I decided to call it. And I think it's a more accurate term of what's going on now in that sector. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. And your main points of contact with the Invisibles, with this secret group working on the UFO thing, 
are these two guys that are anonymous. You call them Tyler and James. Tyler, of course, goes with that Fight Club motif. But learning about these guys, even just the the little bit you were able to say, I'm sure there's so much you can't say, but even just that was fascinating. What can you tell people about these two guys, Tyler and James? Sure. So I do talk about two representatives who open the book. You know, we go to a place in New Mexico that's not Roswell, but is supposedly, allegedly, a place where, you know, they believe that UFOs crashed in the 1940s, 1947. And so we go there. And what intrigues me about each of these guys is that, well, they're both scientists and they're both incredibly successful scientists. Okay. One is affiliated with the university and the other one is affiliated with lots of other space program and stuff like that. And they're both incredibly intelligent. And I'm going to stop reading the reviews of my book, but I've actually read some of the reviews and, you know, some of them, like there's one in psychology today that says the book is good. It's a good book. And I follow it, except that she seems awestruck by these scientists. And I'm thinking, well, you know what? I think anybody would be. Yeah. And it's true. Each of them in their own way. I mean, each of them is probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my entire life, you know, and I do meet a lot of smart people. So yeah, these guys are brilliant. (laughs) Was I awestruck by them? I was. They didn't lead normal lives. No. And if you read about them, you'll see that they just do not lead normal lives. They are not like me. Okay. I'd not met people like that when I was doing straight up Catholic history work. Okay. So I was awestruck and that there were other people like this too. I thought, wow, I didn't know that these people existed. So I think that part of the book for me, and I do think that that comes out and a lot of people take exception to that is like, you know, oh, she seems so incredibly impressed with these people. Well, of course I'm impressed with these people. You know, one of them can quote unquote Uber a jet if you want, you know, Mm -hmm. I've seen him do that. And, you know, how many people do you know that can do that? You know? And so, yeah, it's really impressive. And they do this through what they believe has to do with the inspiration they get from what they think are alien artifacts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) if the story sounds absolutely weird, it is absolutely weird, but it's true. And so why did that come through in the first couple chapters of, I think just my, I called it mind blowing earlier. And I would have to say that, you know, there's another word for it, which is more, you know, um, academic. It's, you know, my epistemological shock. Yeah, I was shocked on so many different levels, but let's just call it being mind blown. I was, my mind was being blown. Yeah. I'm a normal person. And here I'm introduced to a world that's not normal at all. And it is filled with millionaires and billionaires. And it is filled with people who have these belief systems. And I do tell them that I'm writing about them. And they say, we know that. What I can say is that they don't talk about it they do the research, the research is going to probably come out as peer reviewed articles and stuff like that. It won't look like, you know, there will be no, this is the smoking gun of UFO proof. I don't think it's going to come out like that to tell you the truth. I think it's just going to come out as real boring stuff that when you read it, I won't be able to understand it because I've read some of the patents. I don't understand them. I'm a smart person, but I'm not a scientist. So that's really how it's going to happen, Greg. And I think that, you know, it's these people that are doing that work. 
Well said. Yeah, it is just really amazing that you got to spend any time at all within a circle like this. And some of the breadcrumbs that Tyler and James drop that you were able to include are pretty impressive. They give these little insights into their work and their world that I am always thirsty for. For example, Tyler describes getting brought in, so to speak, and it sort of stemmed from an idea for an experiment that he had that he says came from a memory of some kind. Definitely in the wheelhouse of things I've heard before when it comes to certain ideas just coming to people at the right place and time. They sometimes feel like they were given these ideas, but once he's in the secret program, he says that his desk was next to a square room that was covered in concrete and metal. He goes on saying, There was something in there that either emitted frequencies or signals, and they didn't want those to escape, or they didn't want signals to get in. I never knew which. It was a mysterious place, and we weren't allowed to talk about it. And later, he adds that, In the program, I started to find myself on jobs where I interfaced directly with the phenomenon. I know its language. It does speak to us in space. I don't know who is responsible for putting me on these jobs. I think somehow they are responsible for it. My own direct boss doesn't know what I do. This is how the program works. And those are just a couple of the reveals that sort of dance around the things that we think are happening, but we just can't seem to confirm them all that often. I just can't get over it. But you mentioned that car ride with Tyler and James. That seemed pretty intense. You had to be blindfolded for the car ride to be taken to the secret location somewhere in the New Mexico desert in a no-fly zone. And there are insightful layers of detail there too, but ultimately you found something alien. You use the term artifact. Can you elaborate on that experience a little bit and maybe describe what you found out there for the people? Sure, we found artifacts. And first of all, I resisted going there for a while because, you know, it's kind of odd to be asked to go there. And I was like, why does this person want me to go there? Tyler asked me to go because Tyler believes that the historical information that I had, and by the way, he's not the only scientist that had approached me and asked me about some of my work in, like I did some work on angels and in the past in sources about angels. So I had been approached by people associated with let's just call them groups that study UFOs, okay? So hmm. these are private groups, actually, associated with billionaires. They have their own scientists, and their scientists reach out to me and, and ask me for information. And I said, my information is online. I don't hide anything. You know, you can read it and ask me questions about it. That's fine. And so it wasn't the first time I was approached. But what happened here was that he asked me to go. He said, I think that you need to see some of the physical evidence for this instead of just kind of the historical abstract stuff that you write about. And of course, I was intrigued, but I was also not really willing to go to this place where I had to be blindfolded. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I was like, yeah. I don't think I'm going to do that. And so at the time, I said, can I bring someone with me? And he said, no, you got to go by yourself. And I was like, well, then I'm not going to go. And he goes, okay, well, who do you want to bring? And I asked, I don't know if you're aware of Jeff Kripal and his work. Mm -hmm. He's an academic at Rice University. So he's a colleague of mine, and we work together on various things. And I said, Jeff, listen, you really want to go to this place with me. It's really going to be cool and this and that. And we have to wear blindfolds. And he was like, 
uh, Diana, that's just like outside of my comfort zone. I, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> and so I, again, I was like, you know what? He's right. Like he's just too weird. And then I had been introduced to James and James again was an academic. So I felt comfortable. Don't ask me why. I know academics. I've been one for a long time. So I felt comfortable with James and he's obsessed with the study. So I asked him and I said, will you go? And he said, I'd go tomorrow. I'd go like in 10 minutes. And so I said, okay, right. So I submitted his name to Tyler and I said, what about this guy? And I knew Tyler was going to say yes. And the reason I knew that he would was because of all the scientists in the world, I thought that if anyone could figure out the artifacts, that it would be James. Now, remember, though, I'm a scholar of religion, so I'm not necessarily believing any of the stuff, right, that they believe. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm learning about it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm maintaining this skepticism, which they both understand. And so Tyler eventually said yes. So we all fly out there. We all meet up. And we stay at this place. The next day, we're told to wear special clothes because there are rattlesnakes out there. So we wear like these leather boots and, you know, it's cold, but it's also really sunny. So we're going to get burned probably, you know, by the sun. So I'm wearing like a hat and, you know, we look kind of ridiculous and we go out there. Tyler has metal detectors that are special metal detectors, I guess. And they're configured to certain types of things. And so we use those and we spend all day out there and we do find some artifacts out there. Now, we're not born yesterday, although some people might think that. So James and I confer with each other occasionally. We're like, okay, are we being set up? You know, what's going on? Are these being planted out here? And, you know, some of the artifacts are so far below the surface of this really strange rubble stuff out in the middle of nowhere that... I can't imagine why someone would plant them out there for us to find, but maybe somebody did. So anyway, so he found some, and then later on, Tyler and I found some. And I could tell some of the part what they looked like, and it's disgusting to tell you the truth. It looks kind of weird, but it looks like frog skin that's metallic. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's strange. <laughs> yep. Um, but some of the other parts, they did not look like that. They looked different. and it's hard to explain what they were made out of. They looked like they were threaded with something that I wasn't quite sure what they were threaded with, you know, some kind of very, very small, intense thread. So anyway, they were taken back and they've been continuously looked at by scientists from all over the place. Wow. By the way, some people have asked me, are these the artifacts that, you know, some companies out there have and that are talked about? And I don't know. I mean, these are not those artifacts. They might be the same type of artifacts. I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. But these artifacts are in the possession of other scientists, not me, not James, and not Tyler. But Mm -hmm. there are people that, you know, James looked at them, did some analysis, and then they left and went somewhere else. So I don't know who has them now. (laughs) Right on. Very exciting. But Of course, you mentioned aesthetically, one of these things looks like metallic frog skin. And I have heard descriptions of things of this nature as being a mix of mechanical and biological. Is the metallic frog skin description just aesthetic? Or would you say that it did seem like some of these things had a mix of mechanical and biological components? That's a good question. So... Some of the work that I've done and one of the papers that I wrote that 
you know, Jacques said, oh, this is good, but we were doing this already in the 70s kind of thing. And I was like, I'm basically talking about biotechnology and the kinds of ways in which the human being is interfacing more and more with technology. I mean, we can't escape it. We're immersed in it. A lot of people that aren't me, but, you know, came before me have said that when and if we do meet ET, that it will be techno, right? It's going to be the technology. It's going to be either, they're not going to be carbon-based. They're going to be techno. And so I don't know, Greg. So, I mean, that's the big (laughs) question. What is this stuff? I think that I, as a professor of humanities and religious studies, I can't say what it is. I honestly don't know, but do I have an opinion about it? It's hard for me even to form an opinion about what the heck, (laughs) what the heck it is. Mm -hmm. I can only report, like I said in the book, what the scientists said about it. And they were confused. It was probably the biggest question mark they ever had in their lives. And that's why they're obsessed with it. You know, think about it too. You know, we're researchers, right? So we each have our own specialty. And this, for me, this kind of what I call this new form of religiosity this is the biggest question mark I've encountered in my research, so I can't let it go. So they're not going to let it go, you know, so they're going to continue to try to figure it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is fascinating. And in terms of the place itself, you mentioned you had to be blindfolded for the car ride. But then there's also this passing remark in the book about this secret crash site location also being the same site where an X-Files scene was filmed. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know if it's really where the X-Files scene was filmed, but I can tell you this, and it is in the book, it's in the first part of the book, where I basically take off the blindfold. So we get there, it's a really weird, awkward car ride. I don't do well. Well, frankly, I've not been blindfolded before, so I can (laughs) honestly say that I didn't do well blindfolded. I was all nervous. And so we get there, and we take off the blindfold, James and I do, and I look around. And it's really beautiful and eerie looking. And I'm looking around and I keep looking at this one kind of mesa area. And Tyler looks at me and notices I keep looking over there and he says, oh, yeah, do you recognize that place? And I say, what are you talking about? I've never been here before. And he laughs and he goes, yeah, but, you know, you recognize it. And so I look at it again and I go, no. He said, well, it's one of the scenes in the X-Files. And I looked at it and I was like, it does look like that scene. It looks like the crash scene, you know, where the saucer crashes into the little hill. And he said, oh, they may have had like an insider on their team or something like that on their production team. Right. And so at that point, I mean, a weird story just got supercharged weird. It just got so weird for me that I felt like I wasn't even in real life. You know, I felt like, where am I now? And so I just thought more and more about it. And I thought, you know, wow, this is really Jungian, like in terms of Carl Jung. I feel like I am at ground zero of a mythology of our age, like a new form of religion, you know, because the whole mythology of Roswell, the whole mythology of New Mexico, and this new form of religiosity, which, you know, these people believe that this is a sacred site. So from then on, my research made a lot more sense to me because at first it didn't. I was thinking that these people just look at these things as relics, just like, you know, Catholics have relics. You know, in every religion, there are sacred items, like sacred books, sacred things that people touch. There are crosses, there are crucifixes, right? We call these things relics. 
And I thought, you know, we're going to a place where they're relics. But then I recognized that this had to do with the media. You know, this had to do with not just a relic, but the actual place itself. Everybody knew about this place because of the X-Files, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, this brings it up to the Kubrick level. You know, 2001 Space Odyssey, where this kind of belief system is coming through, through screens, through TV, through media. And now I get it. You know, this is way more interesting than I thought it was. So (laughs) that's when, for me, it became really bizarre. (laughs) It was bizarre enough already, but this became really weird for me at that point. Yeah, it takes it to a new level. You mentioned 2001. Of course, what does the monolith look like but a smartphone screen? It's like yep. maybe that is an alien interface of some kind. And <laughs> it is really strange. But I love that little detail because I've had guests who talk about how it seems that certain sci-fi writers maybe were more connected than you might have thought at first and that these inner circles actually contain some Hollywood threads. And it isn't just some of this really far out sci-fi stuff, it's not just ideas that they came up with creatively. Sometimes it is a seeded message of some kind. For some reason, maybe we don't know exactly why, but I find that really interesting. And it also kind of connects to the fact that it is a strange book to come out of Oxford University Press, the one you wrote, and other academics who have tried to go down this road, like a John Mack, they haven't had very good experiences. But In the past few years, there does seem to be maybe something changing. We had that Pentagon disclosure that money was put into UFO research in the last decade. We had that big To the Stars Academy thing, which kind of felt like a rollout of sorts. I'm curious, did Tyler or James ever comment on the veil being lifted or even this To the Stars Academy project or any of this kind of thing that maybe we're entering a new era where some of this stuff will start to come out? Okay, so that's a really good question. I'm not going to talk about the To the Stars Academy. I will say that many times I have questioned if this was somehow all being done, you know, kind of doors were opening for me too easily, right? Mm. And I did question that. I do know that this is an academic book. And Oxford would not have accepted it had it not been. And my editor and I went back and forth a lot about, you know, how do we say this or how do we present this? And that they are top-notch academic. And that sometimes during interviews, if I have an opinion that it would not be accepted by either Oxford or my university, that I would say that. I would say, I distance myself and say, this is just my opinion as, you know, a person and not as an academic. So I knew I needed to write the book from the perspective of my field, which is not gung-ho belief, right? However, that said, the very book itself and the very mythology of entering it and the very fact that it's immersed within screen cultures and that screen cultures actually permeate our brains and our bodies in ways in which I do detail in the book makes this a different book and makes this whole era a different era. So I could write this book and also acknowledge those parts in the book where I say, how do I write this as an outsider? And I just basically said, it's impossible for me to do that because I'm not an outsider. 
I mean, I've been raised on Star Wars, hmm. you know, and all of us that are living today have been raised with media that have in many ways influenced the ways in which we believe in extraterrestrials and UFOs. And because of that, we do have to talk about this. You know, this is something now that can be reviewed in psychology today and that, you know, will get the attention. Well, I mean, let's put it this way. After Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal wrote their New York Times article in December 2017, I got phone calls from people from Harvard who were basically asking me about the research and study of UFOs and how can we include this in the curriculum at Harvard, right? Hmm. So there, and John Mack was the guy who was investigated by Harvard in the 1980s. So the landscape has completely changed. And I do believe part of it is because of the digital infrastructure in which we live and that most of us, like I said, were weaned on Star Wars and that we've come of age now. We are now professionals. And plus, you've got NASA scientists basically coming along, you know, like Ellen Stofan, who I think she's still the head chief scientist of NASA. They may have changed that, but she was a year ago. And so she comes along and she says, we're going to find extraterrestrial life. And it's going to be really soon, within the next 10, 20 years. We have the equipment. We know where to look. And she's not necessarily talking about intelligent extraterrestrial life. You know, she's talking probably about microbes and stuff. But the ways in which we interpret that as people who've been brought up with uh, Star Wars and such, is that, oh, yeah, we're going to find, you know, E.T. has either been here or here. or You know, we interpret that in many ways, and most of those ways are primed by media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. And as you said, all this ufology stuff was pretty new to you and outside of your typical research territory, but not by much, because the study of religion can get pretty weird. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and where your knowledge of Catholic history might overlap with what's considered paranormal today? Because there are some great examples out there. Absolutely. In the field of religious studies, and this is an interdisciplinary field, and a lot of people aren't even aware that people do this. So in a lot of universities, there are departments of people who study religion. And these departments are filled with all kinds of different, you know, in my department, let's take my department as an example, we have archaeologists. We have people who study languages like ancient languages, Greek, Latin. There's a linguist. And we also have people like me, you know, historians who they have a tradition that they study. And then we teach about religion. We don't advocate religion. We don't say you need to be Jewish or you need to be Christian or something like that. We teach about religion. So that's what we do in my field. Now, that said, what do we study? Well, you know, we study stuff that looks to be from a rationalist perspective kind of strange, right? Take Christianity, for example. This is a guy who's born of a virgin. He's the son of a god, and he can walk on water and do all these kinds of things. You know, to a person who's a non-Christian, say, from another country, you know, that looks kind of odd. Mm-hmm. You know, right? So, Or you study bodhisattvas, you know, who can fly, or, you know, things like this. So we do study things that would appear to in a rationalist universe to be non-rationalist, right? So it's not that weird that people in my field would study the belief in aerial phenomena or UFOs. So to answer your question, that is what we study. And I know there was another part of your question. And can you restate it so I can answer that part? Because that was interesting. Oh, just um, what some of the examples might be that you find in religious studies that might be considered paranormal if they occurred like today. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. 
So this is what happened to me when I first realized that <laughs> I made a realization at one point when I was studying the UFO phenomena. And I thought, you know what? I actually think that I've been studying this my whole life, you know, because I thought I was studying religious studies. But actually, I've been studying this stuff. So in my book on purgatory, I did this analysis of basically a history of purgatory, which, if your listeners don't know, is a Catholic doctrine that is about souls. And when you die, your soul in Christian theology, you can go to hell or your soul can go to heaven. But in Catholic theology, which is also Christian, your soul can go to purgatory, which is a place between it could be bad or it could be good, but it's definitely not heaven. Like your soul is not good enough to get into heaven. Well, what I found out was that purgatory began as a place. So there were some places on earth that were called purgatory and that the doctrine of purgatory kind of arose from a lot of these places. And in fact, there's still this place in Ireland. If any of your listeners have been to Ireland, it's called Loch Derg. It's an island out on this loch called Loch Derg. And there was a purgatory cave out there and people would go to the purgatory cave and go into it and it would be good for their souls. Hmm. So that surprised me. So that was very odd. And they would meet demons and all kinds of things in this purgatory cave. Another thing is that once I started to realize that there were some correlations between what people saw today and what people saw back in the day, I went back to the original sources of some of the more interesting Catholic sightings, like the Marian apparitions. And I also went back to Teresa of Avila, who was a 16th century Spanish nun, who basically had an experience that is, if any of your listeners have been to Rome, they may have seen a statue by Bernini of her. It's called the Ecstasy of St. Teresa. By the way, she's also called a doctor of the church. So she's quite a well-known saint in the Catholic tradition. And she had an experience. And the experience, if you see it, so it's depicted in art. If your listeners have their computers or phones in front of them, they can Google St. Teresa's ecstasy. And they'll see this encounter that looks like she's encountering this kind of angel, this cherubic looking angel. But I decided to go back to the original source of that and read it. And I read it. And it looks like it could have been in John Mack's book called Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens. <laughs> I had reread it and thought, oh my goodness, this is really a weird experience that she had. She didn't even know if it was an angel or what. She didn't know what it was. So she called it. She said, I'm not sure what kind of angel this is. This is a short angel. And it's all on fire, it looks like. And then it has this little dart and it examines her, right, with this dart. And so, you know, that looks like this classic abduction experience that we call that today. Yeah. And so I went back and I looked at these kinds of sources and reread them and with the new lens that I had. And I thought, wow, this is really surprising. <laughs> borderline blasphemous, right? So, I mean, you know, I wouldn't tell my super Catholic family. <laughs> They're going to read about it anyway. But <laughs> Yeah, I love that St. Teresa example. That was the exact one I was hoping you would cite because we have this ecstasy of St. Teresa statue and it just doesn't really look anything like what the original account says. And that's what's really important about the work you do is you go back and you look at the original first mention and you're like, hey, this isn't exactly how it's represented. And maybe this is something different. And now that you have this new context, you can put all those pieces together. And I just think that's really, really fascinating because these are clues as to what is really going on in ufology, perhaps. 
yeah, it's going to make a lot of people very unhappy and, and upset, right? Because they have their interpretation of the experience, you know, and they want to believe the Bernie version, right? And here I come along and I say, well, and I hate to say it, but people in religious studies, this happens to us all the time. We get on an airplane and people ask what we do. We never say, I study religion. That's the worst thing you could tell somebody because then, you know, they tell you something and you know, well, that's just an interpretation. Have you read the original source in Latin? You know, I mean, if you do, then your interpretation changes. So we're used to our work, you know, having haters, I guess you could call it, (laughs) right? So I knew once I started to do this, I was like, oh, great. If I thought my purgatory book, which, by the way, not a lot of people read academic books. It's not general reading. But for some reason, a lot of people are picking up my UFO book and they're going to read it. And I think people who get it, you know, and are already somewhat conditioned to understand this, they're going to like it. But I think a lot of traditional people that are going to read it, they're going to not like it. And in fact, I read one review of it that basically said, this will expand your mind, but it hurts. <laughs> it's not an easy expansion. <laughs> Man, reading reviews can be uh, a trying experience for sure, but that that is a good detail. I like that one. But it's a slippery yeah. slope. Be careful there. <laughs> no, I I will. So I wanted to get into the, the Vatican side of things a little bit because that's another huge takeaway from the personal journey of your book, almost didn't make it in from what I understand, but you went off to do some unrelated research that ended up being maybe more related than you might have thought, right? Absolutely. This is where, you know, you want your job to be interesting. And I have to say that mine never fails to surprise me. So I finished my book and I turned it into my editor and it was already late. And it already had to go through like all kinds of editing because people are in the book that need to look at it and make sure that it's okay. So it's being edited. And I've been asked to go to the Vatican and it was funded by a billionaire who wants to learn about these saints who are said to have bilocated and also to levitate. And I'm supposed to look at these manuscripts, find them, and basically just look at them and kind of do an observation of them and do a first look kind of thing. So it's kind of like a reconnaissance mission that I'm on. And getting into the Vatican is hard enough, especially the secret archive. You've got to have the correct credentials. And when you get there, it's a long ways from where I'm at. So when you get there, you want to make sure that they have what's there because they have a huge library and it takes them a long time to find this stuff. So I'd spent about a year in contact with the Vatican archivists there in the secret archive. I've told them, this is what I need to find. They're in Italian. I'm in English, and I'm trying to write in Italian and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So that's what the experience was so far. So then I realized that it might be interesting, since now I have this new idea about Catholic history, to take Tyler with me. Because Tyler has no clue about the Catholic tradition, yet has a lot of information about aerial phenomena. And I thought, how cool would it be to take Tyler share with him a lot of these primary sources, I'll read them to him, and just get his opinion about them. Not only that, but I had been invited by Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory, which is in Castle Gandolfo, the papal summer residence about an hour and a half outside the Vatican. That's where they keep all the space research. And that's really where I wanted to go. So I thought, 
I could combine these things and go there and look at the space research stuff and then look at the stuff at the Vatican proper. And so I wasn't sure that Tyler would be able to get into the archive because they won't let anybody in. And so we got a bunch of credentials for him. You know, he got letters from deans of colleges and stuff like that, but they wouldn't let him in. And I was actually on the plane on my way there and he was texting me and saying, they won't let me in. Hmm. Well, at some point he decided he's going to show some kind of ID to them. And I thought, well, gosh, if, you know, I don't know what kind of ID he's going to show, but if they know that he's affiliated with anything that has to do with aerial phenomena, they'll probably get suspicious and not let me in. So I thought, don't do it. Don't do it. You know, but then because he couldn't get in, he, and he tried for hours. He finally did. And apparently was given all access to get in. I mean, it was <laughs> a very odd thing. And by the time I got there, he'd already made some friends <laughs> with some priests who knew the Vatican inside now and could take us all kinds of places that I would never have been able to go. So it was just really serendipity. I don't know what you want to call it, but it was really cool. So we got there. We were able to do the things that we were able to do. I was able to go actually see the Bernini statue. And the weird thing about it, too, is the priest that Tyler made friends with actually had a relic of Teresa of Avila, which I was amazed by. So I took a picture of that. And then we traveled up to the space observatory after about a week. And it occurred to me when we were in the space observatory archive that one is a saint. She actually, she's not a saint. Her cause for canonization is actually being heard, but I'm not sure she will be canonized. But her devotees, I guess is what you want to call them, the people who want her to be canonized, this has been going on for a long time, hundreds of years. So um, it doesn't look good. <laughs> but anyway, so I looked at her record, and she's actually part of American history. And if you go to the Southwest, you'll see churches devoted to her. She's called the Lady in Blue, and she lived in the 1600s. And she believed that she had been carried and flown on the wings of angels across space to a place in New Mexico. And there she evangelized indigenous Americans, right? So I was at the Space Archive and I thought, wow, that's a really weird coincidence. And so I kind of looked up at Tyler and I asked him, I said, did Maria actually go to the place for it? Because I didn't know where I had been. I was blindfolded, so I didn't know. And he just looked at me and he got a really weird look on his face. And I dropped the topic, but I thought, you know what? This has to be my last chapter because this is just too coincidental to leave out. Because, you know, if you think about it here, Greg, you've got, and I'm not trying to be literal because there are so many layers of meaning to this. But back in the day, Spain colonized that area. It didn't go well for the indigenous population. Mm -hmm. It was a terrible thing for them. And it was a point of contact between two cultures. That was a violent contact. And here we have another place of supposed contact, which is contact between, you know, extraterrestrials and humans, right? So I'm not talking about this literally now. I'm talking about it metaphorically. A lot of people believe in it literally. You know, obviously Tyler does. Obviously the Catholic Church does as well, right? And it was actually a literal contact for the Catholic Church and the indigenous Americans. So it was a very strange circle. And I knew that this would have to end the book. So I, that night I got back in touch with my editor. I said, eh, sorry, 
this is a really cool trip and I really think I have to write about it. And I sent her some of the pictures that I took there and she said, okay, go ahead, write it. So I finished my last chapter there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love those two bookend stories kind of and the way that they sync up. I mean, when you examine things like ancient structures or even the layout of something like Washington, D.C., it seems like certain people have put emphases on things like ley lines or the planet's energy grid. And I've always been kind of curious if there is some component that is geographic in nature to paranormal experiences. Are there hot spots? Is it because there's more energy here or there? Or can there be some way to harness certain things? So the fact that that came up here, I think it's just, you know, another clue. Yeah, it was a clue for sure. And this is where I take off my academic hat and just kind of tell you a little bit about the experience for me. So when I wrote the second chapter, you know, with James and about James, and I, it's hard to write a book and I'm struggling here. And I was thinking, how do I start this? And I started it by talking about the actual place that we were in, in New Mexico. And how it definitely didn't seem like the place where I live. It almost seemed like it was conscious. And so I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say about a place, but I'm going to put it in there anyway. Hmm. So I put it in there and I realized that, yeah, that's exactly how it felt to me, that this place was not your normal place. And it became its own character in a sense. And then when we were in the archive at the Castle Gandolfo Space Observatory, I actually decided that we should probably look at some of those more physical components like latitude, longitude, amount of metals in the earth in these different places. And, you know, we found some pretty interesting phenomena there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Diana, I could do it all day. This is really amazing stuff. And you have just really interesting insights and a unique take on a lot of these things. Are there any plans to continue this work or take it deeper? Maybe. I'm not sure yet. So I'm going to find how it all shakes out because it's not your typical type of religious studies book. So I'm just going to wait for maybe six months or so, or maybe a little bit longer. I do have another book I'd like to write. It delves into the idea of what I found was that most of the people I talked with always had this thing, which I call in the book, the book encounter or the synchronicity, the really intense, meaningful of coincidence. And I'd like to examine that more in depth, but we'll just wait and see how things go. Mm, right. The right information crossing paths at the right time or yes. really altering the person's life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so just as we're ending this up, how can people, I mean, obviously you can get the book anywhere, but we also have a link to give them because you do blog and uh, kind of carry this journey forward on your website, right? I do. My website is AmericanCosmic.com. And if people are interested in latest types of interviews and things like that, they can go on there and put their email address in and I'll blast out an email. When I talk about things, you know, I've talked about fact and fiction in film, you know, with Oxford. And, you know, I do have, you know, like this interview, I blast that out, you know, so I do have things that come up that I think even other people's works that relate to this topic, like Eric Fargo's Time Loops, you know, it's super interesting. Jeff Kripal's new book, Flip, you know, I'll blast those out too. So anybody who's interested in this type of thing, feel free to do that. Awesome. Are you still doing coupon codes of any kind for the book? 
I do have a coupon code. Yes, I do. And I don't have it in front of me right now, but I certainly will give it to you. You can only use it on the OUP site, though, the Oxford site. You can't put it into Amazon and get the 30% off, but it's a 30% off code. And I can email it to you directly after this. And if you want, you can put it on your site and anybody of your listeners can use it. But like I said, it's just for the Oxford site. Awesome. Yes, I will absolutely include that because I'm sure people are really excited about getting into this book and digging deeper. But (laughs) thanks so much. What a ride. I really appreciate you breaking it all down for us and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Greg. It was wonderful to be on your show. Sweet baby Yeezus, dear listeners. Man, I was so happy to have gotten this show recorded and now to put it out. I really think this is something special. In fact, I heard Dr. Diana on Rune Soup talking about saints last year, and I added her name to my very long list. But then I saw that American Cosmic was releasing and the stars aligned. That's a perfect opportunity. And I just love it because I'm sure you've heard me say on a million episodes in regards to a bunch of different topics. Okay, so we keep hearing about what happened all these years ago, but what's going on now? Well, this is what's going on now. And I felt like I was eavesdropping on some high-level stuff when I was reading her book. And I guess I should mention the Oxford University Press thing. I'm sure there will be questions. It's sort of why I asked her about the To the Stars Academy, which she had no comment on. It just seems like certain forces are trying to find the right ways to reach the public. Obviously, Tom DeLonge wasn't it. And as Diana said, it's possible that she was sort of led down this path a little bit. But I appreciate her willingness to pursue it and also to write about it. I saw another UFO book come out last year from MIT Press. So obviously, some reveals are happening. The faucet seems to have some drippage. And sometimes you can't win, right? Because we want more things to be revealed, but the people who really know often aren't trusted. So it's a bit of a catch-22. And of course, anyone's going to be skeptical of a representative from a place that has kept secrets. But how do you break the cycle? Just things to think about, because a lot of folks out there are talking about disclosure, soft disclosure, and various threads that speak to some kind of reveal. And these are things to keep in mind as that process rolls out. I don't trust everything I hear. I definitely take into account the source, but I also understand you got to be a little realistic about the situation. As always, though, my job is just to present you with the latest and greatest, be forthright about everything I can be, and you work out where it belongs in your worldview. Personally, I just think it's awesome to hear anything new and to talk to someone who's rubbed elbows with the Invisible College and also gotten into some privileged Vatican archives. And there is a lot to be said about Tyler and James. Lots of things to think about and pull apart. Like, I don't think we even mentioned this on the show, but Tyler doesn't drink coffee and he loves meditation, has a set of protocols to keep his mind optimized. Little things in the book that I would read and think, ah, well, that ties into a lot of the things we hear about. 
And if tech billionaires who know the language of alien entities stay disciplined on these key things, maybe it's good stuff to fold into our own lives. Plus, I really liked her insights into saints and miracles and just how wide a view we might have to take of biblical miracles and religious artifacts. Like the ecstasy of St. Teresa example, people don't often go to the source. We get our mental picture of certain stories from the art that was created to tell that story, and sometimes that isn't a proper representation. Is the difference intentional? Was everyone just so Catholic in these examples that it was the only box that you could put it in back then? Or was it packaged in a way to prop up the Catholic Church? I don't know. But it's funny how today a movie like Titanic or American Sniper forms a distorted mental picture of the actual historic event. It's the same with the ecstasy of St. Teresa's statue and probably many, many other things in those archives. And if you're interested in reading the book American Cosmic, as we said in the show, we have a 30% off discount code to give you so you can purchase the book on the Oxford site. The link will be in the show notes, but I'll also tell it to you now. The code is in all caps, A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. Just think about that song. And if you liked hearing from Diana, do let her know. Her website is AmericanCosmic.com. She's definitely a guest who has a lot of contacts. And when they release books, I'd like to know that colleagues of hers will hear that THC is a great place to go. You get an informed host, a high quality and engaged and girthy audience, and you'll see a healthy response, you know? Sometimes I need you guys to help me play the game and stay on top of the media shortlists. That's just how it goes. And I can give you better shows as a result. So help me help you, and we all win. I am looking forward to reading the reactions to this show. There will be some cynicism and skepticism, I'm sure, because we're getting quite close to the inner circle on this one. And not to repeat myself, but think about the position of someone who's probably in a compartmentalized program, who knows a few things, but not everything, has their own bosses and non-disclosure agreements. I'm not saying you need to just accept everything anyone tells you, but if we're so aggressive and rigid as to not listen at all, how can someone on the inside even talk to us? Why even go through the trouble if they're just going to get stoned by the mob that is the alternative community? You know what I'm saying? These things have been secret for a lot longer than the careers of people who are currently involved with them. So if we can't be somewhat open and somewhat civil and make it comfortable to talk about, they'll just say it's not worth the trouble. And the secrecy cycle will continue. We're going to have to come to some middle ground eventually. But who am I to say when those conditions are right? Anyway, this was fun. I'm not used to having a guest who actually can't talk about a lot of what they've seen and done. You want to push to get a few more details, but you don't want to get your guest in trouble or go overboard with it. I think we got a lot of great stuff, though. Tyler's work experiences. Diana's going to a secret location that looked a lot like a place an X-Files scene was filmed at. The crossover between reality's secrets and Hollywood's insight this metallic frogskin artifact, 
Saints Biolocating. Thought it was great, and I highly recommend the book. If you only heard the first hour, as always, we have a second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com. You get the full archive, THC music, joint sessions, and other bonuses. In this episode with Dr. Pasolka, we talked about the Vatican's huge head start compared to Silicon Valley and the CIA's paranormal research. It's another one of those details. This came out in the Plus show, I guess, but hearing that the Vatican has books on electromagnetism in their archives, that's something. We also talked about how UFOs and religious encounters might both relate to some technology that we don't know about. How the spikes in major UFO sightings suggest a pattern of reinforcement. I just think that whole section is mind-blowing. But then we also talked to Diana about her thoughts on the occult and the alien spirit overlap. And if you listened closely, she said that she put the people she was dealing with in the context of what she knows about Jack Parsons. But we talked about a lot of other stuff like Dr. Dean Radin's work and technologies we have today that might relate to previously found ET technology, reinterpreting the stigmata with modern knowledge, a lot of great stuff. And again, just really psyched to put this out. We're not going through the motions of the same old outsider speculation. We're talking to someone with firsthand experience. And she's been super nice through the whole process, although I know she's had a lot going on. So I definitely thank her for her time. Hope you enjoyed it. And that ends the month of February. Lyme disease shows, UFO shows, cult of bail shows, and space weather. Man, it's been a ride, and I hope you're strapped in for more. I'll see you next time. Your move, invisible college colleagues, saucer secret keepers, and attendants of the metallic frog skin. Your fucking woke up this morning with light in my eyes and then realized it was dark outside it was a light coming down from the sky I don't know who Must be those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light put people up tight Leave blue-green footprints that glow in the dark I hope they get home alright you please take me along I won't do anything wrong hey Mr. Spaceman won't you please take me along the high side woke up this morning I was feeling quite weird I had Flies in my beard, my toothpaste was smeared. 
Hi.